Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and try and learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Diane Pecorari, who is a professor of English at City University of Hong Kong. How are you doing today, Diane? Very well, thank you. The topic we're going to be speaking about today is English medium instruction. And Professor Pecorari is a perfect person to speak with because she is the co-editor of the new Journal of English Medium Instruction. So to begin our interview, um, could I ask you a little about your personal background using EMI, both as a teacher and as a researcher? Right. Well, as a teacher, I made my first foray into English medium instruction when I began teaching at university level in Sweden. Now, back then, there was not as much EMI as there is now, but working in departments of English, uh, English then and now is the only language of instruction. And I think my research interest in EMI followed on very naturally from, from teaching in that setting. And the, that, that teaching led to all kinds of questions that I found very interesting about how this thing works that I wanted to find out more about. Now, English as a medium of instruction is something that's come up in our previous interviews with Dr. Jennifer Jenkins and also with Dr. Howard Brown, who is on the editorial board of uh, of your of the new journal, and this is it's through him that we have uh, made this connection. The paper that we're going to be discussing today is called "At the Crossroads of TESOL and English Medium Instruction," and the paper goes over how, while they may seem not to be connected, language teaching and teaching in English do have some uh, interesting overlaps. You wrote this paper with Professor Hans Malmström, who is also a co-editor of the. Uh, new journal. How has your connection with English medium instruction courses changed having moved from Sweden to Hong Kong or uh, any of the stops in between? The two settings are very interesting uh, and, and very diverse. So it's probably fair to say that what, what, it, what is called EMI in Sweden is almost a different animal from what's called EMI in Hong Kong. In Sweden, there is a, a very strong level of, of knowledge of proficiency in English. Um, that's quite, that's an important factor that underpins the, the prevalence and the growth of EMI in Sweden. A sort of societal belief that um, every everybody, by virtue of having done compulsory education, ought to have the proficiency in English to do pretty pretty much anything that's required in English, and therefore, attending university or teaching university classes, um, those things are no exception. But English is very much a foreign language in, in Sweden, a very strong one. Hong Kong, of course, has a, a long history of English as a colonial language. Um, the expectation of proficiency in English isn't as universal. There are obviously very many people with 
very strong English language skills, but others without it. And this is to a great degree linked to media of instruction at school. Um, however, almost all of Hong Kong's universities are exclusively English medium. So in Sweden, students go to university from a base of having attained a very high level of proficiency in English and then can choose between attending university in English or individual courses in English or in Swedish. In Hong Kong, the choice to attend university in Chinese or with Chinese as the medium of instruction is almost non-existent, not quite, but almost. Um, but people reach university having gone to English medium schools or Chinese medium schools or some blend thereof. So they're really very different contexts. Mm. Well, that leads nicely into uh, the next question that I have, which is we have looked over several of the interviews that I've done uh, in, this, um, in this series, art English being used as a lingua franca in, in various contexts. Yes. Um, and it's noted very early on in the paper that, and just to quote, that EMI presupposes and is enabled by the ability of all participants to use English as a lingua franca. So how do you think that the use of English as a medium of instruction has potentially changed the language? Do you think that it is used in a different way when it's used as the medium of instruction than it is perhaps in other contexts? So I, I think it is the the question about elf hmm. that that sheds light on the question you're asking. And I, I don't really consider myself an expert in elf. Um, there there are certainly people who research English as a lingua franca who would want to argue that it is a variety in its own right. Um, I don't I don't feel knowledgeable enough about elf to to take a, a standpoint on, on that question. But certainly it EMI is a very um, sort of specific set of circumstances and contexts in which English is used and is used by by and among people, most of whom have another first language or have a range of different L1s. So there, there is certainly something very distinctive about, about the EMI setting and about English as it is used in the EMI setting. Um, is, is, that, is that going to alter or has it altered the language? I, I don't know. And perhaps significantly, I'm not aware of any research that, that has investigated that. Um, but it, it's certainly a question. It, it might be, it might be one of these watch the space questions. Well, uh, it's also one of the things that you note uh, under the first uh, stipulation of EMI. So that the paper itself goes through four points yeah. that most EMI researchers can uh, agree uh, in relation to the use of English as a medium of instruction. And the first one is that, as you know, English is the medium of instruction it seems to be an yeah. axiomatic um, yeah. point but also you you immediately point up uh, pick up on the fact that it's uh, EMI is generally used in a heteroglossic setting so there are by definition at least two languages at play uh, in the language classroom and there could be depending on the context as you say many many more so I think it, it's probably likely that 
depending on the context, the, the way that the language is, is, uh, is used is, is going to be affected. So just to run through the, the other four points that uh, you, you lay out in the paper. So first of all, that instruction is in English. Uh, the second one is that the point of an EMI course is not necessarily to teach the language or generally not to teach the language, but it is teaching the content uh, of the courses. Uh, the third one is that it's not focused on language development. And this is kind of the, the point I'd like to pick up on next, because this is a, a, an extended section in the paper. You note that perhaps the people who are planning for EMI courses have this in the back of their minds that it will cause or, or be the reason for language development, even if they don't build it into the courses. This is one of the things that you pick up when you talk about uh, when you, you bring up the point of stakeholders. So I, I, I did like this quote that you brought in from Coleman, which was, there is no such thing as a prototypical EMI environment. And an environment, sorry, an EMI environment is an environment where, is an environment because we and the stakeholders say that it's so. Do you think that it's necessary to have an explicit explanation, conversation, about what is intended by the course with the stakeholders, the institution, teachers, teaching assistants, and of course the students before the course begins so everyone knows what, what they're supposed to be doing, what, what page everyone's on. I think in, in any educational enterprise, having clear and explicitly articulated goals is definitely a step ahead. But I, I do think that in, in EMI, most of the time, that does not happen. I, I believe that most of the time, the different stakeholders are on very different pages and have different expectations and aspirations, and perhaps in many cases, have expectations that they have not even articulated to themselves consciously. Could you expand a little on that? What, For example, what... Uh... What do you think is the difference between the expectations of students in Sweden to students in Hong Kong? Right. Um, I, I think that a lot of participants in EMI, students and teachers both, do put a lot of stock by incidental acquisition. They believe that it, they, they, they believe that it will be an outcome of EMI. Um, incidental acquisition is real, right? If it, if it weren't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do exchange semesters. We, you know, we wouldn't do it in, in intensive um, language courses in, in, in places where the target language is spoken. The, so, you know, that of course is real. Um, how much incidental acquisition is going to take place during a, a course or even a, several years of a degree program with English as the medium of instruction. But we don't really have a, an answer to that question. We, we don't have much in the way of empirical research speaking to that. Um, but nonetheless, I think if you ask students or teachers, will this happen? If we, if we, if we create an English medium environment, will language learning take place? I think the most people would say yes. Um, I think that they would be, I think many of them would even be surprised that that's even a question. I, I do think it's an open question though. Um, so, and you know, again, it may be that EMI is just absolutely wonderful for language acquisition. We just don't have much of an evidential basis for jumping to that conclusion. Mm. I, I think that 
a lot of stakeholders believe that English is going to be unproblematic or largely unproblematic, that English is, if it's not, if language learning objectives aren't the purpose of EMI, then internationalization probably is, right? And I think that most of the drivers for EMI come down to internationalization in one shape or form. EMI will let us bring international students into the classroom. EMI will let us bring exchange students into the classroom. EMI gives us a vehicle for recruiting staff internationally who don't arrive wherever we are already speaking the local language. Um, maybe they never will, maybe it will just take them a few years to get there, but it's difficult to recruit internationally if you insist on if the local language is the only language of instruction. So one way or another, EMI underpins and supports a lot of really diverse activities that come under the heading of internationalization. And, you know, so going back to the idea of expectations and how stakeholders' expectations may be diverse. Um, if, you're, if you're a student, maybe you kind of think, well, I want to take this course. And if I sign up for, maybe I don't have a choice. Maybe the course only runs in English, so I just have to take it in English. Or I have the choice to take it in English or in my local language. But if I take it in English, well, that will just add a little bonus to the learning experience because I'll, I'll improve my English language skills a little bit. On the other hand, the administrator who decides to run the course in English may be thinking, um, well, we have to do it because the person who's going to teach the course doesn't speak Cantonese, doesn't speak Swedish, doesn't speak Japanese, whatever the local language is, or we want to be able to, to get full, en full enrollment in this course, we have to be able to open it to international students, and the language won't be a problem. It will just be a neutral lingua franca. So I guess that's what I mean when I say expectations are, are, are different on the parts of different actors. Well, let's think about the topic of internationalization in relation to EMI, because it's one of its perhaps strongest selling points to an institution, but also one of the points that perhaps is one of the greatest uh, detractors from it when it comes to a language point of view. So the possibility that the use of English as a medium of instruction will replace the local language be it Japanese, Swedish, Cantonese, and somehow supersede. Where do you stand on that question? And uh, how would you address that if the question was raised, uh, for example, in connection to beginning a journal uh, of English medium instruction? Yeah. I think it's a real concern. It's, and, and it's a concern at two levels, right? So at the societal level, there's, there's reason for concern. There are very many people who are concerned that EMI may result in domain loss. This is a, a very big issue in, in the Nordics. Um, Sweden is the most populous Nordic country with just 10 million people. So then you look at Norway with something like three or three and a half million people. Denmark, a little bit larger than Norway, a little bit smaller than Sweden. Um, the, the number of people who speak Scandinavian languages 
is very, very small. And that's one of the reasons that EMI has the toehold that it has in the Nordics. So there has for many years been a concern that about, about domain loss. Um, the academics have to conduct their academic activities in English. Textbooks are published in English. There are some textbooks published in the Nordic languages, but quite a lot of textbooks are in English, either English textbooks are adopted or you know, sometimes local academics write their textbooks in English for, for the sake of um, you know, that, that greater international accessibility. Research, of course, is exclusively published in English, at least if, if it's going to be published in high impact journals and so on. Um, if teaching moves to be more and more in English, there's a real concern among many people that Swedish or the other Scandinavian languages will just cease to have an academic domain. So that, that's one area of concern. The other is at the individual level that EMI might lead to something that's sort of akin to subtractive bilingualism. Um, you know, Bourdieu famously said, academic discourse is nobody's mother tongue. So you've gone to school in your local language your whole life. You're a proficient L1 user of, of the local language. And then you get to university. And even if you attend university in your L1, you become a language learner again because you're learning that new foreign language, you're learning academic discourse. If you get to university and you're attending classes and reading textbooks in English, then you're learning academic discourse in English and not in your first language. So you're training to be a midwife or you're training to be a, a, a veterinarian and you're reading in your textbooks and learning in your clinical practices about mastitis. And then you have to talk to a Cantonese speaking dairy farmer about the health of the dairy herd. Um, how have you learned, how have you learned to say mastitis in Cantonese and using the word that real people use rather than the word the textbooks use. So at the individual level, there's also, I, I think, a, a real reason to ask whether EMI is crowding out other languages. And there's a whole lot of hand-wringing and a whole lot of emotional language um, about this topic. I don't necessarily adopt the, the more millennialist um, perspectives at that end of the spectrum, but there are questions that need to be asked. There is a source for concern. It's interesting that you bring up Bordeaux because that's something that I came into contact with when I was doing my PhD in relation to exactly what you're talking about. Um, uh, and I, I believe that the use of uh, English uh, EMI courses within Europe is kind of tied to the Bologna Accords of the late, around 2007, 2008, which Very much was, so. which was to try and get 20 per, uh, students throughout Europe to get 20% of their uh, university credits in a foreign language, which was essentially interpreted that they would all do it in English, which did uh, receive a lot of pushback, uh, especially from Nordic countries. But uh, in touching on Bordeaux, it's I think internationalization is an interesting way to look at that question because the, the forms of capital that Bordeaux talks about is that the kind of the economic capital that the universities might be seeking 
by using EMI is possibly cancelling out the social and cultural capital of the, the, the language, the L1 of the various students. What activities have you observed where individual teachers may be attempting to push back against this, if, 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 if at all? If we look across the university, I think it's probably fair to say that there isn't a great deal of pushback. Um, one of the, the, the sources of concern for me about EMI is that it is very frequently adopted unquestioningly and uncritically. You know, to, to return to, to the example of domain laws um, as an example, I do not know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to the question, is English actually threatening local languages in EMI settings? The concern for me is that that question is very rarely posed. It's certainly not posed very often at the levels of government or university administrations that make the decision to implement EMI. So I think there's, I think there's not enough pushback, um, but to the extent that there is, I think it probably, and again, I'm generalizing, I think it probably comes from the humanities and to some extent the social sciences. Mm. I, I think that, um, you know, if you are a, if you are a Chinese historian, you think it's very, very important that your students have outstanding academic literacy skills in Chinese so that they can consult primary texts. If you are a Swedish comparative literature specialist, you think it's very important that your students have outstanding literacy skills in Swedish so that they can read complex texts critically and actively. And I think the, the, the practice that's adopted by way of pushback is simply using the local language, assigning readings in the local language to the extent possible, um, conducting classes, insisting on assessments being written in the local language. I have perhaps quite a complicated question, but I think you're probably the best person to answer it. Do you think that this is perhaps a balance of power problem uh, between the institutional decision makers, the, the institutional stakeholders, and the actual educators in the classroom? And if so, being the, the co-editor of a new journal in this field, um, do you have any idea how this might uh, affect your editorial policies, kind of the, the way that you would uh, examine the, the works that are being submitted to your journal in order that that this balance might be you know, resettled? So to answer the first part of your question, I, I don't think it's primarily a balance of power question, if, if I'm interpreting you correctly. I, I don't think, for example, that the situation is that administrators love EMI and teachers hate it. I think that they probably either like it or don't like it for different reasons. I think administrators like EMI because it makes it very simple to tick the internationalization box, to fill up seats in classrooms. I think that, that teachers have attitudes that are, are closer to the classroom and teaching and learning. The teachers who like EMI like it because they, they believe in incidental acquisition. 
or because they believe that internationalization is important for the personal development of their students, for enriching the classroom. Um, so if, if, there, if there's any kind of balance of power divide, I would suspect that it's more to do with academic disciplines rather than to do with, with levels of the university. I think the differences we see across those levels are more about why you think EMI might be good or might be bad. The, the second part of your question is, is a very interesting one. And I suspect at, at one level that in terms of editorial policy, there's very little that we need to do to ensure a critical and balanced perspective on EMI, because in my experience, um, and it is perhaps somewhat paradoxical, the people in a university who are most concerned about English and its potential negative consequences are precisely English linguists. So I would be very surprised if we received a significant number of submissions to the journal that laud EMI to the skies or that take an uncritically positive perspective on it. But certainly our, our, our intention and our mission is to bring a great breadth to the EMI question and to elicit a wide range of perspectives on it. Well, on that point, and uh, to kind of maybe move it into a more uh, positive area, because maybe we've been uh, thinking about the negative points of EMI, I just want to read out from the mission statement of the Journal of English Medium Instruction, uh, which says that EMI is an inherently interdisciplinary field spanning multiple branches of applied linguistic uh, and higher education pedagogy and didactics. A key objective of uh, the JEMI is to unite these strands of EMI research and enable scholarly work in one corner of this interdisciplinary area to reach both researchers and practitioners in others. So again, a kind of positive question, what are you looking forward to learning through the submissions and what, what kind of areas are you looking to be elucidated by this journal? Right, so one of, one of the very interesting questions is going to be just how researchers construe English medium instruction. So in, in the article in the TESOL quarterly special issue, um, one of the things we did was problematize the idea that EMI is a phenomenon that occurs in places where English is not the official or the dominant language. And in fact, we had contributions in, to, to that issue that were, were set in um, English dominant geographical settings. So, you know, I think, I think the, the received definition of EMI has a lot of support behind it, but one of the things we did for that article was a, a literature review where, where we, we looked at articles that defined themselves through the keywords as being related to English medium instruction. And we found that there's a lot of variety in, in how, how researchers construe EMI, um, that they, they do go beyond the sort of prototypical or received understanding of EMI. So it's going to be really interesting as submissions start coming in to find out what perspectives are taken on EMI um, that we maybe 
you know, aren't expecting or aren't aware of. So that's one thing. Um, what, I, what I very much hope we're going to see also is work addressing this problem. So there are concerns about, about EMI, but EMI is, is here to stay, right? As, as King Canute found out, there's no pushing back the tide. EMI is with us. It, it is a fact of, of life in higher education and increasingly in secondary education and expanding into primary education. So what do we do if we want to avoid some of the, the potentially negative consequences? How real are the negative consequences? All these things that we worry about, are, are these worries well-founded? It would be really great to see some research addressing those questions. And if the, if the concerns are well-founded, what do we do about it? So, you know, one, one obvious open space waiting for research to expand into it is the whole concept of translingual pedagogies. If English is a, a permanent, inevitable facet of higher education around the world, what do we do to ensure that other languages have a look in? Um, you referred to the Bologna process a, a few minutes ago. Yeah, one of the things that has underpinned the expansion of EMI in Europe is the Bologna process. And the purpose of the Bologna process was to increase cross-border exchange within Europe, to increase the number of students and the number of teachers going on academic exchanges. And that was actually meant to support the European objective of MT plus two, the idea that every, every good European citizen should possess good competences in their mother tongue and two other languages, but that isn't happening. What's happening is that, that Bologna has in fact become all about English and other languages are, are not getting a look in. It doesn't have to be that way. So I really hope we're going to see some research exploring how translingual pedagogies can actually support and maintain the status of other languages in the face of English being an increasing feature in higher education. Well, also translingual, but also the idea of translanguaging, I think yes. is something that, that's that's taking off. And I think that EMI could be something that is uh, at the forefront of that, given that, as has been noted, there's at least two languages at play in the, in the classroom at all times. And you note basically it's an institutional or even in, an, an instructor's decision about how much of the L1 is used. To, to you as an educator working in Hong Kong, uh, how much of your students' L1 is used in your classrooms? This is a vexed question. Um, the, the official answer is none at all. Um, here, as in many places, the use of the L1 is very much frowned upon. One of the questions on our teaching evaluations that has to be asked in every class is, my teacher used English as the exclusive medium of instruction. And if the answer to that is anything other than yes, the teacher's in trouble. And, and yet, even, even at a, a university like CityU, so um, in, a, in a very competitive environment, my university, City University of Hong Kong, um, is ranked in, in the, the, the top 50 universities in the world by, by the QS rankings. Um, 
So we are very competitive. We're able to attract the very best students. There is a widespread recognition that students are not able to do everything in English. So wander down, wander down a hallway and eavesdrop outside a classroom. And yes, you'll hear explanations being given in, in Chinese. You'll hear definitions or translations being given in Chinese. Now, as a, a linguist, I hear that and I think, wow, translanguaging, excellent. We need more of this. But university administrators would say, no, no, we need less of this. Um, and I, you know, I, I've spoken about my own university because I'm familiar with it, but I don't think you'd find anything different at the other Hong Kong universities. And if you look at sub-degree institutions, if you look at, you know, two-year colleges granting associates degrees, you'd find even more of it. And I, I, I completely agree with, with what you're saying. And also, I think it's the same in any EMI course or what was called an EMI course here in Japan, there's still the necessity from time to time, and maybe it doesn't always come from the professor, but it might come from the teaching assistant, it might come from uh, the students them, themselves kind of like explaining things to each other, but it is a, a prime example of a, a translanguaging environment. It, that kind of does come back to the question of being able to explain the best way to teach to people who are not teachers. And how, I mean, maybe this comes from your experience of, of uh, working in your university or somewhere else, of how open in your experience have administrators been to being explained these kind of points that no, this is not a negative, but this is actually a net positive for both the students and the institution? I think, I think that's an important question because it, it's, it's something that we need to do more of. So that's a specific example of a, a broader issue, which is taking specialist knowledge and translating it so that it can be understood and, by non-specialists and understood well enough that they're happy to take it as the basis for policy recommendations or, or, or practice. And if I answer your question very literally the way you asked it, my, my own experiences have been, have been varied because it depends very much on, on the individual. And there are, of course, some people in university administration who, who listen, want to listen, want to learn, trust the expertise of their colleagues in different areas, and, and others who are, are less... Um, disposed to to take new perspectives on board but you know I, I i do think that this is this is absolutely what we need to do emi and, and you you quoted that that piece from the mission statement of, of the journal earlier um emi research is obviously more about about more than just applied linguistics um, but, but I'm a linguist, I'm an applied linguist, and I, I think that what we need to do as a field is make applied a truth rather than an aspiration. You, you touched on rankings earlier, and this is something that has come up when I've considered the importance of EMI for curriculum planning because oftentimes EMI is seen as something that will, as you say, 
uh, attract more international students and also make it possible for domestic students to gain more experience in the target language. Do you think that there is a there is a that's the strongest connection that administrators can see to the positive elements of EMI that they are going to have a rankings boost by the the use of these courses? I do. I I would I would broaden that out a little bit uh, because different different universities and different contexts are oriented in different ways to 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 rankings and you know again there's a a, a big contrast here between Hong Kong and Sweden in Hong Kong uh, this is a very very rankings oriented society in in Sweden universities have been a little bit less inclined to pursue the the large international rankings at all costs but in in every society in every context there's competition for resources so for any university getting the resources means ticking the boxes that release the resources so internationalization is an important metric it's a metric that feeds into many of the rankings and influences that, but it's also a metric that, that is rewarded by, by governments, by ministries of education. So yes, I think internationalization in its broadest possible sense, and it's a very broad concept, it includes a really broad range of activities. I think internationalization is the primary driver for EMI and university administrators pursue internationalization because their metrics look good or their rankings look good when they do. So the paper we've been discussing today is uh, at the crossroads of TESOL and English medium instruction. And uh, spoiler alert for anyone who is interested in reading the paper, and you absolutely should. It's a very good uh, overview of um, how these two fields uh, intersect. And also, it's a good lead in to uh, the journal that you're launching. I'd like to read to you the, the final phrase that you include and then uh, ask you a question based on that. So uh, putting together all of the various components that you look at through your literature review and how you define EMI in relation to TESOL, uh, you conclude EMI involves an educational setting in which language learning objectives are in symbiosis rather than in tension with subject content uh, objectives and in which good planning ensures that the preconditions for success are in place and that the acquisition of English is incidental but not accidental. And I would just like to uh, finish my questions on the paper with, have you come across any cases or any courses where this is actually happening right now? No. Okay. That, that, is, that is an aspirational definition, and, and acknowledgedly an aspirational definition. There are, I think, a lot, of, a lot of courses, a lot of individual courses where aspects of that are present. But no, I, I think what I think what we're calling for there is actually something that would move EMI a little bit closer to CLIL, mm. that would involve a, a bit more forward planning, deliberate and explicit articulation of objectives, shared objectives across stakeholders, it's something something that that's purpose built for EMI, rather than. Um, EMI implemented with a whole lot of assumptions hmm. and and optimism. 
So I don't think it's impossible, but it's not something that I, I think you can very easily identify in the wild today. Well, it was it was uh, aspirational, and I always like uh, papers that end with a with a positive note and something to to reach towards. In connection to that, and kind of just to slightly move it away, but also uh, in a field that that you are uh, professionally connected with, you are a, a PhD supervisor uh, at your yes. university, and it also says on your on your website that you're open for people to apply uh, for you to supervise their work. Is there any any area that you would recommend to someone or if they came to you with a plan that would uh, excite you and, and draw your attention? Yes, so so we are actively soliciting applications from um, researchers who would like to investigate EMI, um, CLIL, other content and language um, pedagogies. I'm not the only supervisor in the department working on that subject and we're very keen to to attract people working in those areas to build up a critical mass of phd candidates who can support each other and bounce ideas off of each other and feed off of each other i guess the the, the thing that i would most like to see in in phd candidates that i supervise that i'm most excited um, to see work expand into is this question of how how we reach that aspirational definition. Um, I I think that EMI currently is falling a little bit short of its potential, and I'd be really keen to see research exploring how it can fulfill its potential. Well, I would hope so too. One of the questions I've been asking to my interviewees during this this whole project is how are you maintaining your academic momentum during a time when it's difficult to travel to places, meet people. Um, do you have any advice for people who are, you know, in this situation and are trying to maintain that uh, that forward professional momentum? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, this this past year has thrown up massive challenges. I guess what I have been trying to do myself, so maybe it's what I would advise others to do, is roll with the punches. We can't get on airplanes and, and go to conferences as easily as we could. Um, on the other hand, we've be, all become adept at using Zoom. So um, it, it, my, my co-author Hans Malmström and I were scheduled a, a year ago to start a round of vocabulary testing. We're really keen to find out um, how well prepared for the English medium environment people in our respective contexts are. And one way we were going to set about answering that question was by testing their, their academic vocabulary knowledge. Well, it's been 12 months now and we're not able to get people into a physical room and give them vocabulary tests. So what we've, what we've done is, um, you know, retrench, put those plans on hold and set about writing up some of the, the data that we've already gathered that we've been a little bit too busy to, to write up because we've been getting on planes and flying off to conferences. So the only survival strategy I know is, you know, roll with the punches, gather the advantages in these strange circumstances and you know, milk them for all they're worth. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for your advice and also for your time today, Professor Pecorari. Um, to 
to finish, the paper we've been looking at is At the Crossroads of TESOL and English Medium Instruction, uh, which was published in TESOL Quarterly in 2018. And I wish you the very best of luck with all of your work, Professor, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a great pleasure. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.